I'd invite you to turn, turn to Matthew 16. And as I mentioned before, Matthew 15 through 17 are this turning point in the gospel of Matthew and in the, and in the ministry of Jesus because up until this point, or at this point on, the people begin to reject Jesus. Now what I mean by that, they don't reject Jesus as a teacher. They don't reject him for his miracles. They don't reject him for his teaching. They don't reject him because he's, you know, they're still coming out to hear him. They still want to be healed by him. They still want all the benefits of following Jesus, but they reject the fact that he's the Messiah. And so even though they're following him, they're not accepting him. And if you looked at the church today, you have the same situation. There's a lot of people in church. There's, you know, churches can be filled with thousands of people. But there's a whole bunch of those people that say, yeah, I'm following him because I sort of like the way it feels. But I'm not surrendering to him because I don't want to be transformed. I don't want to have to be obedient to what he might be telling me. So it's not that they openly oppose him. It's just that they refuse to recognize his claim as the Messiah. And so we come to that in Matthew 16. And Jesus is not teaching the masses here. He's not teaching 4,000 people sitting on a hill or 5,000 people or whatever. He's now drawn away and he's now just talking to his disciples. And this is beginning another turning point from this point on. Jesus is now spending a lot more time training his disciples, teaching his disciples of the events that are going to take place. So he's got his, just his group, and he's saying, okay, now, you know, let's, let's get down to brass tacks. What's, this is what's really going to happen. Um, and also, Matthew 16 is probably one of the key chapters in the, in the entire Bible when it comes to understanding scripture, when it comes to understanding God's plan, Jesus himself, and the church. In fact, it's the first time the church is mentioned in the scripture. Matthew brings it up here. And the passage hinges on three um, sections. And the first one would be Jesus' question. The second would be Peter's response to Jesus' question. And then Jesus' reply. So with that in mind, go ahead and just read Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. And it wouldn't be bad to have somebody read it out loud or read it together. One person read part of it and then the other person read another part. Um, it's amazing when I say read it out loud, nobody does it. But when I say be quiet, everybody's talking to one another. <laughs>
So that first part is Jesus' question. And he starts out by asking the disciples this question. Who do people think that I am? Who do people think that I am? And the disciples give him four answers. Now, earlier we know that the Pharisees thought he was of Satan. But now the so he's asking the disciples, who do the people think I am? And he gives these four answers. Um, and the individuals that Jesus is compared to sort of gives insight to his ministry. And again, each of the people that Jesus is compared to are people who are dead. And so the people at this point are thinking, he's resurrected. One of these people is resurrected. And I just find that in and of itself so amazing and so interesting that they couldn't comprehend who he was unless he's somebody who's been resurrected from the dead. Um, he's not a new prophet. He's not a new... No, this, he's something from the past. And so first they go John the Baptist. And John was, you know, the primary forerunner of, of Jesus, of the Messiah. And he was known for his hellfire and brimstone preaching. And so people are sitting there going, well, he must be John the Baptist. Which sort of gives an indication that Jesus may not have always been gentle in his approach. If people are saying, well, he must be John the Baptist. Because um, he's the one who looked the Pharisees in the eyes and called them a brood of snakes, a brood of vipers. A pack of snakes. That's not gentle. You know, that's sort of a little confrontational. Um, Elijah is known for his miracles and his confronting the prophets of false worship. And so, and Elijah was also a forerunner of the Messiah. And so he, this compares Jesus to this fearless confrontation of falsehood uh, that the Pharisees were. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. And so you, it also gives a sense that, okay, there's this, this compassionate, pastoral, caring side of Jesus that he would weep over the sins. He would weep over the plight of people, that he, he had that kind of love. So you see them comparing to them. And then, Jer, um, then, also, then also other prophets who are known. So he just does this comparison of these different prophets. Um, and there are basically two problems with each one of these um, that are being given to Jesus by the crowd. First of all, notice that each of these relate to Jesus to some famous and respected figure in Israel's history, but every single one of them fails or falls short of who Jesus really is. The things that, that they're saying about Jesus all meant to be a compliment. Well, he must be this person because of how great that person was. Um, but they all miss truth. And they all miss who Jesus is. So even though they were a compliment, it was actually a rejection of who Jesus was. And I see the same thing happening today. Oh, Jesus was, or Jesus is this good teacher. And they give a half-truth. And it may sound like a compliment, but that compliment is actually a rejection. See, there are times when a compliment is not a compliment. Um, it's, a, it's a rejection disguised as a praise. 
Um, and that's what happens all the time. And then secondly, notice that every single one of these designations <coughs> is, mixes truth with error. They say these are the qualities of Jesus, and we accept that, but at the same time, they only give a half-truth. Um, and we know that a half-truth masquerading as a whole truth is a whole lie. You know. So what you have is this rejection and this lying. And so you hear the message that is there for us. It's not enough that we think highly about Jesus. We must embrace him as the Messiah as he has revealed himself in the gospel. Not some kind of made-up imagination of how Jesus should be or who he is or how he's going to work in my life, but this is the Jesus of the gospel. And that's who I need to accept because anything less than that is either a rejection or a lie. And it's really that simple um, bottom line. And so in verse 15 and 16, Jesus pushes the envelope on them. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? So he starts out with, who do the people say that I am? And they give the answers, and then he really confronts them. And that word, but, sort of disqualifies everything that else was said before them. And it's, it's even in, in counseling with people, they'll say, yes, I understand, yes, I understand, yes, I understand, yes, I know I should do this, yes, I know I should do this, yes, I know I should do this. And then you think, okay, we're all on track, we're right on board. And then they'll say, but. And as soon as that but comes out, you know that everything else was said beforehand means absolutely nothing because the but is going to tell you what they're actually going to do. You know, I know that I should do that, but I want to do this. And so Jesus is saying, who do the people say I am? And he goes, but who do you say I am? And that's what he really wanted to know. He said, I don't care what the other people say. I want to know who you think I am. Um, he wants them to be absolutely convinced, absolutely committed, absolutely confirmed to the truth of who he is. Because from this day forward, he's going to start telling them things that they're not going to want to hear. He's going to tell them what's, going to, what's coming before them. And they will not appreciate the significance of his work if they are not absolutely clear on who he is. They will not appreciate what they're going to have to go through if they're not clear on who he is. We will not appreciate the things that we may have to go through if we are not absolutely clear on who Jesus is. We will not appreciate the struggles that we may go through if we're not absolutely clear on who Jesus is. And so it's no different for us. He wants us to have that same confidence of who he is in order to be able to go through life the way that he wants us to do. The same is true for us today. The answer you give to the question, who is Jesus, will impact every other aspect of your life. In his book, The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer, he makes this comment. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Um, in essence, he was saying, what you and I think about God is directly, directly influences how we live and interact every day. 
If we really believe that Jesus is the Messiah, He is the Lord, He is in control, He is the one who orchestrates, then when we confront different issues in our life, there's going to be an element of trust. There's going to be an element of saying, yes, I can trust God in all of this. But if we just think that God's a, Jesus is just a nice teacher, a good teacher, one of many prophets who have all these different opinions about God, when we confront issues, we're not going to have the sources, the resources to make the changes. We'll go through life, and if we don't have that kind of understanding of God being able to transform us, we'll go through life with the same anger that we started out in life or experiences. We won't have the ability to forgive. We won't be the, have the greater ability to love. We won't have the greater ability to surrender things. Instead, we will continue to live with the same frustrations, the same hurts, the same issues if we don't have a right understanding of who God is. So when we wake up in the morning, your thoughts about God influences everything else about your life. And, so that, and that becomes our choice. Um, and we will all have to choose something. We will all have to choose something to believe about Jesus. And it's important to note, regardless of what each one of us believes, Jesus is still who he is. You know, just because we believe one thing doesn't mean that's who Jesus is. Jesus is who he is, not who we think he is. He will not be defined by us. We are defined by him. Um, what we choose to say about Jesus says more about ourselves than it does to say about Jesus. And so a lot of times when somebody's talking about Jesus, they're really revealing a whole lot about themselves. Not at all anything about Jesus. Um, so now we have Peter's response. And Peter answers the question as a spokesman for the group because the, 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 the noun there, you, is this plural. So when Jesus says, who do you think I am? He's saying it to the disciples. And Peter seems to be like the primary spokesman on a lot of this stuff. You know, it's sort of like Jesus asks them a question and they all go off and get in a huddle. Okay, guys, what do you think? I don't know. What do you, th what do you think? Peter, you, say, you answer. You answer. You know, we'll, we'll let Peter take the heat. And so Peter gets up and says, well, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And um, Peter makes that statement. And there are two parts to it at this point. First of all, he says, you are, you are the Christ. By that he is saying that Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are the promised one. You are the promised one to Israel. You are the one that was sent to deliver us. You are the long-awaited deliverer of all of God's people. And then he goes on to say, secondly, you are the Christ. You are the very Son of God. You are God's own Son, and there is no one, no one like you, and there has been no one like you before you. So he's saying, you know, no, you're not one of the resurrected prophets. You are unique. You are the Son of God. You are the Messiah. And that's quite an extraordinary claim that Peter is setting forth. And yet it's the very heart of Christianity. This statement right there is the very heart of Christianity. 
And there's a lot of people that will call themselves Christian, but will reject this truth. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That he's fully human, fully divine. That he is the only way to God. He is the only way to salvation. And so we'll have churches all over the world that will deny that truth. And yet, this is the basic, one of the basic truths of, of Christianity. And it means embracing that truth, believing it with all your heart and soul, and committing our lives to him as the Christ, the Son of the living God. Um, and what's so significant, again, about this, is that all three Gospels, three of the Gospels, focus on the fact that from this point on, there's a shift in Jesus' ministry. Only then did Jesus begin to teach the disciples about his coming death. Uh, in fact, from this point on, Jesus focused his ministry more and more on interacting with the disciples and less and less on interacting with the masses of people. Uh, so this is just a key verse. And it's amazing how many, how this has gotten watered down. Um, so Jesus' response at verse 17. After Peter had spoken these words, uh, the very first thing that comes out of Jesus' mouth as he blesses Peter for the answer, he goes, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Folks, the reason why prayer is so important it's not our reasoning that's going to convince somebody to come to Christ. It's God opening up a heart of somebody that they're open to the truth of God's word. That that's, we mentioned last week, it's not, the hard, it's not the evidence that prevents somebody from coming to Christ. It's the hardness of heart. And so Jesus is saying, blessed are you because God has revealed this to you. And think about the contrast. The crowds had seen many of the same things that Peter saw. The crowds had seen the healings. The crowd had seen the raising of the dead. The crowds had seen the feeding of 4,000, the feeding of 5,000. The crowds, they may not have seen him walking on the water, but they had seen pretty much all the other miracles that were taking place. And the crowds had heard many of the same things that the that the disciples had heard. As he's teaching the disciples or as he's teaching the crowd, they're all hearing the same thing. The, how the crowd had been with Jesus, not to the extent of Peter and the disciples, but the crowd had been with Jesus. They had seen his character. They had seen everything they had done. They had seen him act and they had seen him teach. They had seen him uh, do miracles. They had seen how he lived. And yet... Peter and his disciples believe, and many in the crowds don't. So again, folks, it's not the evidence. It's how open is a heart and a willingness to say, okay, God, I'm yours. Teach me. Show me. Lead me. And Jesus is saying, the reason that you believe and then they don't is not because you have been with me more than they have, it's because God has shown it to you. He has opened your eyes. 
And again, by the way, he sort of says it in sort of a striking way. He says, it's because my Father in heaven has revealed it. Even that phrase reveals the uniqueness of the relationship with Jesus. Because Jesus, when he talks about his Father, always says, my Father. When he's talking to the other, he says, your Father. You know, and he sort of says this sense that this is this special relationship. Um, and then the three following verses of this section introduce a new element, the church. Again, this is the first time the word the church is used in the New Testament. And so in verses 18 through 20, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the, that he was the Christ. Now, the word ecclesia, or church, here, really means an assembly of citizens, uh, regularly summoned, the called out ones, who were its official representatives. So here, what you really have is the church is believers. Now, we in the United States have two churches. We have the visible church, which can be believers, non-believers, atheists, agnostics, it's anybody who assembles on a Sunday morning. But then there's the invisible church, the body of believers. They didn't have the same thing going on here. If, this, if they were there, you know, they were, they were called out and they were coming together, and it wasn't cultural, it wasn't anything else. In fact, it was countercultural. And so for them to be a part of this church was the fact that they could be martyred, they could be persecuted, they could do all kinds of things. So this was a really a sense of a calling out. Um, we have to deal with a whole bunch of different issues than they had to deal with. Um, they said it's these called out ones who were his official representatives. So by being a part of a church, we're saying we are official representatives of Christ. We are called out ones. We are an assembly gathering together because of what Christ has done for us. It is the community of the committed, also known as the covenant community, um, where we are brothers and sisters in Christ and in fellowship with Christ. Uh, again, the redeemed people of God. And if you are a believer... When you trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, asked him for the forgiveness of your sins, you became a part of that community. You became a part of that community. And then he says, I'm going to build his church. And how is he going to do it? And this is where it gets sticky. Because, um, and it's caused great controversy over the year, because he says in verse 18, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. Now, depending on where you come from, what your background is, that can be interpreted in a lot of different ways. For one, the rock is Peter. Uh, this is the view of the Catholic Church. That the rock is Peter, and he's going to build his church upon that rock, and, and Peter became the first pope. And then the lineage of all of that followed. Um, that's one 
one interpretation. Another one is the rock is Jesus. Because in the Greek, it could be sort of like Peter is the little rock and Jesus is the big rock. And so that Jesus is the rock. The problem, this wasn't in Hebrew or in Greek. It was in Arabic. And then it doesn't fit. The same translation doesn't fit. A third possibility is that the rock is Peter's confessional truth. So it's basically Jesus saying, upon this truth, I will build my church. That this is the key truth, and if we're going to be a church, this is the truth that has to be there. Um, the fourth way it can be read is that the rock does refer to Peter and the other apostles, and that Jesus is using them to build the foundation of his church because the emphasis isn't on the rock, the emphasis is on the builder. He says, I'm going to build my church. We spend a lot of time focusing on who's the rock, what's the rock, where's the rock, and he's saying, I'm going to build my church. And sometimes we lose sight that Jesus is in the process of building his church. Um, so it could be any combination of those, and that's why I say if you want to do an interesting study and go through 18,000 trees, um, you could look this all up and come up with them. I think it might be a combination of both, or three, or whatever. Because I do believe, and I think the scripture supports it, that the apostles were the foundation. If you take a look at Ephesians, if you have your Bibles, just open up to Ephesians 2, 19 through 20. I know very rarely do I do this. What? I have to look up another verse? Uh, usually we, you know, we quote movies or <laughs> but not actually cross-reference another verse. Um, does somebody have it? And you have it? Would you go ahead and just read that out loud? 2, 19 through 20. So here, in this verse, it's saying that Jesus is the cornerstone, and he is the builder, but the rest of the church is being built on the foundation of who? The apostles and the prophets, with Jesus being the cornerstone. So there's this sense um, that Jesus is the owner of the, foundation, the building. I own this building. I own the kingdom of God. And... I'm going to build it, and the how I'm going to build it is through the apostles and the prophets. And then who else? The other people. So you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and, a, and are part of God's household. So we are now a part of God's household. So the rock is referred to as Peter. Jesus is promising to build his church on him, but not Peter as the primary foundation. Not Peter as the head of the church. But Jesus as the head of the church. Jesus the cornerstone. Jesus the owner of the building. Using Peter to build his foundation. Um, and again, it's important to note that the emphasis in verse 18 
is not on Peter or even upon the rock, but upon the builder of the church. So the action of the verse is the building. Um, so on this confession, Jesus will build his church with his disciples as a foundation. So, if you are a disciple, if you are a follower of Christ, if you've made a commitment, you are a part of his building. Um, so, if you've ever made that kind of commitment, you are a part of that building. Um, it is Jesus that does the building. Acts records a lot about the activities of Peter and the other apostle. But again, it was the Lord himself that was adding the numbers in Acts 2.47. Adding to the numbers day by day those who were being saved. Um, now, Jesus uses all these people for the purpose of building his church. And our value becomes apparent when Jesus puts us into his building. Okay? Now, I know that... Um, if anybody's been a part of the church for any length of time, you've probably heard the 2080 rule. Anybody ever hear the 2080 rule? Because it's not just in the church, it's everywhere. What is the 2080 rule? 20% of the people do 80% of the work. I want you to know that I, if that's true, I'm part of the 80. Um, <laughs> but, but, 20% of the people do 80% of the work. If the church is going to be effective, that rule has to get thrown out. It's got to be 100% of the people who are called as disciples doing 100% of the work. If God has called me and I'm part of his disciple, then there's, I need to be doing whatever God has gifted me to do to build up the body of believers. Uh, whatever that may look like, that God is going to be using me. Um, so God uses us, but our value becomes apparent. Again, think of this building. Think of this building. There's wood, there's concrete, there's brick, there's windows. There's metal. There's all kinds of things that went into the building of this building. But if they were just all laying out there in the parking lot, how useful would it be? It's not until the builder built them into a building that could be useful. To me, that's what the Christianity is like. There's all kinds of people sitting out in the parking lot with all kinds of gifts. But until we come together and start using those gifts for the purpose of being used by God for the building of his kingdom, then we're just out there, not making any difference at all. Um, Peter was useful to Jesus as a rock because he yielded himself. And he says, what do you want me to do, Jesus? How I'm surrendering my life to you. And I'm yours. Again, one of my favorite stories is the story of Peter denying Christ. But the beautiful part of it is, the, is when he restores him. 
and he restores them. He's out on the beach, and they're having breakfast, and nothing has been said. Nothing is being said at all. They're, they're eating there, and they're just there, and all of a sudden, Jesus just looks up at Peter and goes, Hey, Peter, do you love me? Well, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Well, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Jesus, you know I love you. Well, if you love me, why are you here? If you love me, get back and do what I gifted you to do. And if you love me, get back and do what you're capable of doing. Don't sit here thinking that you're disqualified. Don't sit here thinking that you're not as good. Don't sit here thinking that you're not gifted. Don't sit here and think that you don't have the gift. Don't sit here and think that you're not capable. Get back and do what I called you to do. That's that we are able to recognize that Jesus calls us and gives us and says, there's a building that has to be built that's called the kingdom of God. And I'm using you to do that. So go back and do it. Um, again. And then he goes on and asks, you know, what, you've got the keys of the kingdom and you got all this and I am already 10 minutes late. Um, and so we're just going to get into that later. Um, <laughs> I didn't realize how late I was. I apologize, folks. Um, but basically, the kingdom of the keys to the kingdom are us proclaiming God's truth. If we are not proclaiming the truth of God, we've shut the door. How is a person going to hear about Jesus Christ if the body of believers isn't telling them? That's the key. If any person walked through that door and we just said, sorry, no admittance, how are they ever going to hear about Jesus Christ? And so the keys to the kingdom are our ability to take his word and proclaim it to others. Um, I'll, I'll add more on that someday. It just, it's oh, yeah, good point. Good point. I, I was thinking 12. <laughs> Got all kinds of time. Um, <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> um, again, just three principles to take with us. The church carries the message of hope through Jesus Christ, folks. That's the hope of the world is Jesus Christ. And if we as a church are not proclaiming that, we might as well just lock the doors, break the lease, and stay home. Because if we're not proclaiming Christ, we're just not proclaiming truth. Um, second, the, the church must gain its direction from God's spirit. Um, if we get to the point where we think we can beat the bushes just right, and they will come if we can think we can use the right marketing campaign or the right approach or the right ad campaign that we will just win people to Christ, we're fooling ourselves. Uh, in fact, we've already lost if we start thinking that. It's not about us. It's God's church. And we are to be built up into it. And the church has to offer individuals a chance to respond to the claims of Jesus Christ. We have 
to give people an opportunity to respond to the claims of Christ. That's what the church is. The church is Christ. Okay. And also the church is an unstoppable force, but we'll move on that. <laughs> so. Father, I just praise you and thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. Um, I thank you for the challenge it was for me this week as I just saw things that I had never seen before in it. And as I studied, I, it just continued to reveal more and more uh, to the point that it was overwhelming. And so, Father, I just thank you for your word. And as Vince shared with us during prayer time, that sometimes you just get so overwhelmed, you just sit back and say, okay, God, reveal to me and trust that. And so, Father, I just lift up the things that we shared today. And Lord, whatever is true, let us hold on to. Whatever is not true, let us remove it from our thoughts. Yeah, Father, we thank you, we praise you, and we ask these things. They have our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. I would love for you to do a one-